Let's go back to 1969 for a second. You're 18 years old and you've just moved to New York City. And you're gay. And you want to meet other gay people. So what do you do? You go to Christopher Street and you walk up and down with everyone else and pop into places like the Stonewall Inn. The Stonewall was a safe place. Or a safe-ish place. They were police raids, but that wasn't unusual by any means. But it was a safe enough place to put your arm around another person. To hold hands. To dance. And that is what Mark Siegel did. Mark arrived in New York City at the age of 18 in May of 1969, and a few short weeks later, he was there at Stonewall the night the uprising began. He was also there the next night, and the next night, and the night after that. Mark is known for saying that Stonewall lasted 365 days. Stonewall ignited something in Mark, and it kicked off his lifelong commitment to activism. On one now famous occasion, Mark snuck into the CBS Evening News newsroom and interrupted a live broadcast with Walter Cronkite while waving a banner that read, Gays Protest CBS Prejudice. That show had 60 million viewers. And repeating that kind of thing, he made such a name for himself that he then started to get booked as a guest on shows. Almost every talk show had him on. This was the early 70s, and with so few out gay people anywhere, he garnered a massive amount of attention for himself in the movement. Over the course of multiple appearances on shows like The Phil Donahue Show, audiences got to see him talk about being gay and not apologize for it. As you will hear, that was incredibly unique. And then just a quick note before we get to it, this was recorded before we knew the results of the Georgia Special Senate election. So we do refer to Mitch McConnell as the Senate Majority Leader. He no longer has that title, which I think we all know, yay to that. But I did want to leave in those references and that entire section, because I think it's important to the overall point that Mark makes about the state of activism today. From The Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and this is LGBTQ and a So you moved to New York City in May of 1969. The Stonewall Inn was the first bar you ever went to. And then one month later, the Stonewall Uprising occurred and you were there. Saying all of that, that is a wild introduction to gay life. Did it feel like that at the time? It felt like something that I should be doing. As an 18-year-old, what you did in those days, if you were gay, was walk up and down Christopher Street every single night all night long, meet with your friends, basically hang out. Then sometime during the night, you would pop into the Stonewall. So that was a usual night for me. The only thing that was different was when the raid began, because I had never been in a raid, but the people around me had been. So when I asked what's going on, they said casually, oh, just another raid. That struck panic in me because I didn't know what it was. Oh, so to them, it was just a common occurrence of going out. It was the usual, the police came in, pretended they were doing their duty, got their payoff, and left. The difference here was they barged in, they threw people up against the wall, they extorted money from some of the older people, they harassed the drag queens. It was pretty violent. And so what happened now we see as being incredibly significant to our history? When did you start to realize that? My moment came standing outside Stonewall after being carted and let outside. And as we began to form a semicircle, somewhere in my head clicked, you know, women are fighting for their rights. Blacks are fighting for their rights. Latinos are fighting for their rights. What about us? And I swore to myself at that moment that was going to be my life's work. I thought I'd end up a bag person because gay activists or whatever we were going to call it weren't being paid anything. 
And so you write that it was not the biggest ride ever, and that it's been tremendously blown out of proportion. What specifically has been blown out of proportion? I think what people don't realize, and you could break break it down really quickly, and it's all really very logical. Most of the action took place on one single block. Aside from that one block, there were little incidents happening up and down Christopher Street, but not very much. It also, that one single block, it went on for hours. Nobody was there the entire time. No one knows exactly who was there because in the middle of a riot, you don't take a roll call. <laughs> there was no first brick thrown because there were no bricks in the area. Were there stones thrown? Were there coins thrown? Cans and bottles? Yes. I mean, some of it seemed to be organized. Like, for instance, the guy by the name of Marty Robinson, who was the leader of the action group, which I was part of, came up to me with chalk. And I'm one of those people who wrote up and down the streets of Stonewall, tomorrow night Stonewall, which created, in a sense, the second night where Marty and Martha stood and made speeches from the front door of the Stonewall and made the point clear that we were oppressed, we had to do something, and that meant fight back. In the mythologizing of Stonewall, we talk about how it lasted three days, as if it lasted three days just on its own. And something I hadn't heard before until your book was about how it lasted three days because you were writing chalk on the street, come to Stonewall tomorrow night, how we intentionally kept it going. I mean, you writing chalk on the street, meet at Stonewall tomorrow night, like that spread of information, that's, that's like tweeting today, yeah. you know? <laughs> we had no cell phones. We had no internet. Most of us couldn't afford a phone, quite honestly. During Stonewall 50, it was sort of amazing. I would go out to various speaking engagements. Some of them were in museums. Some of them were in schools. Everyone had, it seemed, a different day. Oh, it went on for three days. Oh, it went on for four days. Oh, it went on for six days. How many days did it go on is a good question. For me, it went on 365 days because right from the beginning, we started organizing. That includes from the street, writing on the street tomorrow night to the third or fourth or fifth night, I don't remember which, where we had leaflets on the street saying, you know, we're not going to allow the, the police to oppress us anymore. This is our neighborhood. That's what is so revolutionary. That was in itself illegal. When we gathered at the steps of Stonewall, that was illegal. Homosexuals could not congregate together. That was illegal. When we said we were going to fight the police, that was illegal. Everything we did in that first year was basically illegal, and we wouldn't be stopped. We were going to be out, loud, proud, and don't even try to stop us. I don't think I knew that part of history, that it was illegal to congregate if you were gay. Yeah, that's why Stonewall was so popular, because if you were walking up and down Christopher Street all night long, which is what I did with my friends, the chances are you would be stopped by the police. Sometimes the police, if they saw a drag queen, would try to find out if they had three pieces of male clothing on, because that was the law. Others would be harassed. It wasn't as safe as you might think it would be. So when you went into the Stonewall, it was a safe place. It was a place you could be yourself. You could hold hand. You could put your arm around somebody. And more importantly, to an 18-year-old, you can dance. <laughs> sure. Now, you mentioned Marty Robinson. He was one of the co-founders of the Gay Liberation Front, which was a group that really helped to forge the foundation of our community. Was the Gay Liberation Front, was that group something that came out of Stonewall, or was it already in existence beforehand? There were many organizations before Stonewall. The leading one in New York was Mattachine. And on my first or second week, I tried to go into Mattachine. They said I was too young. 
as I was leaving, that's where I met Marty Robinson, who was coming out. And he said, you know, these guys, they don't get it. They don't understand what's going on in 1969. We just can't be doing a once a year march. We need to do some more. He created the action group, which I was a member of. There were many little groups or pockets of groups like that around New York. Somehow, after Stonewall, we all united. For the first time, action group, fairies, lesbians, we got together. That's what created Gay Liberation Front. It was the first united movement in our country from the grassroots up. Before that, drag queens weren't allowed to be part of it. Before that, street kids like me weren't allowed to be part of any movement. So that changed with Gay Liberation Front. That's what we were about. So Stonewall was this unifying event. Yes. Because for me, I grew up and I feel great kinship with lesbians and bi people and trans people. But are you saying that the feeling back then was that everyone was a member of separate communities? Yes. And Stonewall, the change was immediate. We need to work together. Oh, it brought us all together. You got to remember that any gay movement that existed before us wouldn't allow people to be seen in public without a suit and tie. I was 18. Come on. Do you think I was wearing a suit and tie? You had to be orderly. I was anything but orderly. You had to be at least 21. I was 18. White, which is a secret that we very rarely ever talk about. That was an explicit rule? No, it wasn't explicit. But if you take a look at the pictures, there was only one Black person marching in anything. Now, if you look at various disturbances, riots, whatever that's happened in our community. Remember, Stonewall was not the first. What we got from Stonewall was an everlasting movement and was from the ground up and inclusive of everybody. We included everybody and anyone who wanted to be part of our movement. But they had to understand what we were and how different we were from anything before that. We were not going to be quiet. We were not going to go by society's rules. First thing we were going to do is self-identify. We were not going to be called homosexuals. That was a clinical term, and that's not who we were, and that was not our world vision. So therefore, gay became the major word, and we refused to be called homosexuals. That's a scientific term. Put it up on a you know laboratory shelf somewhere. I want to be visible. I fought for visibility, and I will remain visible. I am a gay man. Get used to it, people. And so with the Gay Liberation Front, what were the early goals of the movement back then? Two things, or several things. Number one, identity say who we were. Number two, let society know who we were, not the myths that they had about us. Number three, we were going to be out loud and proud. Very important. That last word is extremely important. We were going to be visible. And if they didn't want to see us, we were going to make them see us. It was a total change. We also wanted to create a community. So before Stonewall, this is what we had for a community. Literally, we only have four things. We had cruising areas, the gay organizations who held meetings maybe once a month, private parties, and a few illegal bars. There was no other community. That was it. On the first month after Stonewall, we were on the streets every single night leafleting. We were having social events, which were illegal. We created legal alerts, medical alerts. We had a trans committee, which eventually became Street Transvestite Action Revolutionary. We had a gay youth organization. We had hotlines. We created community. And now we have stats about what the percentage of people who are alive who are LGBTQ. I think or wonder if back then it would be easy to assume that there was, you know, only 10 or 12 gay people total in the entire world. Did, did you have any concept for how big the community might be? 
All we had at that point were Kinsey statistics, nothing else. Um, so we really didn't know, and we really didn't care. We just knew that we had a right to have life, no matter how many of us. We did it because we believed in it. You know, we've named a bunch of groups from the Gay Liberation to the Mattachine Society. There's also the Daughters of Belitis, the Lavender Menace, the Transsexual Menace. Our history is littered with short-lived groups. I think that GLAD and HRC are the outliers there. And I just wonder, what is your diagnosis for why that is and if that is at all unusual for a movement like this? I really don't know. What I can say is it's workforce. What we do have are some organizations nationally who do such an incredible job. Lambda Legal, literally one of the four founders was a member of Gay Liberation Front. You would be amazed at how many things are continuations of Gay Liberation Front. As for GLAD, the beginning of GLAD were disruptions that I did in the 1970s, which changed the network TV programming and news divisions. And so early on with Gay Liberation Front, and then you moved to Philadelphia and were working at the Gay Raiders, how much conversation and dialogue was happening with these groups talking to other cities? Were you sharing techniques and like successes and failures, or did you feel hyper-localized? When I did the media zaps for a short period of time, I was probably the best known gay activist in the nation. There was nobody else who had been seen by 60 million people in one shot, which was the CBS Evening News. At that time, there were only three networks in the country, ABC, NBC, and CBS. There was no such thing as cable TV. So if you wanted to get your news, you got it in two ways. You got it from either TV or you got it from a newspaper. In one night, I disrupted CBS Evening News. He was the most trusted man in America. On an average night, 60 million Americans watch that. That's Super Bowl numbers. Many of those 60 million for the first time saw a gay person. For the first time, Gay Liberation Front came into their living room. And I did that on the Today Show, the Tonight Show, and others. That brought me on to what I learned very quickly was the talk show circuit, which hadn't been open before to people like us. And my whole thing was visibility. So I used that tool to take that. So, for example, when the Phil Donahue show, which first time I did it was based in Chicago. Actually, I did Ohio, Chicago, and New York. First time I did it was Dayton, Ohio. I believe it was a Youngstown, whichever. So when I went there, I made sure that I, the night before, met with the leadership of the LGBT community there and said, this is what I'm doing on a national basis. You can be doing this on a local basis. And, and I did the same thing in Chicago. And I did this everywhere I went. So you started off by interrupting these these programs and then kind of crossed over and became a guest on the show. You were invited on. At the time, you were being booked for these talk shows because you were openly gay and not ashamed of that. And that was a bit of a marvel at the time, right? Oh, absolutely. And I wouldn't take crap from the audience, which made it very good TV. I remember, uh, Phil, before we went on, saying to me, there's a lot of Bible thumpers in here. We're going to have a lot of Bible questions. And of course, when you do this, many times people, they always give you the section of the Bible they quote is Leviticus. So I made sure I learned Leviticus. And somebody would stand up and they would say, oh, do you realize you're condemned to death? And my line says, so aren't you? And they would say, what are you talking about? I said, well, you're quoting Leviticus. Let's look at what you're wearing right now and see what's against Leviticus. By the way, has your husband ever played football? Pigskin? He's gone to hell. So if I'm going to hell, you're gone. You're as equally sinful. 
So let us realize that what you're doing isn't religious. It's, I trademarked this, Bible a la carte. And how did they respond to that? Flustered. I would continue until they sat down. It was like, uh, you're not winning this. The gay guy is winning it. Did appearing on such popular shows, did you feel famous at the time? Oh, absolutely. If I would go into a town, remember, I, I, I often tell this and people are like shocked by it. Up to 1969, and this is only three years later, there were only about 100 gay activists out in the country. You might have a few more people in New York, Los Angeles, but that's about it. So you would have maybe, was it 10 to 15 gay organizations in the nation that were only in major cities and maybe one or two people there were out? Think about that now. Up until 1970, the one and only National March grew under 100 people. That's what it was before that point. So when I was appearing on TV, it was a big deal. Um, And I was on every talk show you could possibly imagine. And if I wasn't on a TV show, I was disrupting TV shows. And this was making, again, headlines in newspapers. So yeah, I felt that way. And I'm going around the country with holes in my shoes. The most interesting time of that period, still dealing with to this day, lots of us who were in the early movement deal with this. We would come home and we'd find a gay friend and they were, would say to us, you're ruining it for us. Because they were afraid what we were doing would shine a spotlight on them or where they go. And we were not very popular. Shine a spotlight on people, meaning they would then be outed? Yes. Which was at that point, 99% of our community was in the closet. Oh, and they want it to stay that way. Yes. That leads me to my big question, which is that I think you write that being gay at the time meant you would leave a life of condemnation and you would be unhappy. Period. End of story. For that reason, many people stayed out of the closet. And I just wonder, like, how did you escape feeling that way? You know, how did, why did you not believe that, too? I can't, I can't actually pinpoint it. All I could say to you is that when I realized that I was gay, and then I started feeling, of course, or seeing around me all the negativity about gay people, you know, the fag jokes in school, or hearing parents or relatives talk about gay people. Once I realized I was, I want the first thing, of course, I wonder, what is wrong with me? And somewhere it clicked in me, there isn't anything wrong with me, but I don't understand why everybody else does. So in order not to embarrass my parents is why I moved to New York. So I was somehow pre-programmed. And I believe that's from the pride that was instilled upon me by my grandmother and my parents because of who I was. I'd already felt oppression from like about the age of five that I can remember for being Jewish. I'd suffered discrimination my whole life. So this was just more oppression. And I guess I related one to the other. Oh, because you experienced extreme anti-Semitism, even though you knew that there was no problem with being Jewish. And so when you experience extreme homophobia, it's like, oh, the same thing. Yeah. I mean, and you try to do it with some humor. You do what you can to live. And the best way to deal with that is humor. I was known for that when I did the zaps. At one point, I had handcuffed myself to the city's Christmas tree. And when the reporters came and asked, Mark Siegel, you're a homosexual. Why are you, you know, handcuffed to this Christmas tree? And my line to them was, because I'm Philadelphia's a Christmas fairy. And then I would say, now to get serious, the issues are. Oh, you disarm them and then you tell them what's up. Yeah. I mean, when the governor asked me to become a state trooper, my first line there to Jessica Savage of NBC News was, I like men in uniform. Now, to be serious, if I have the ability to do the job, 
I should get the job. So is that your assessment of why you were so successful because you mixed humor into your protests and the zaps? Yes. One of my favorite examples is the donuts in the mayor's office. Do do you mind telling that story? Yes. Okay. This is our district attorney. His name was Arlen Spector. Arlen Spector had a room at that time in City Hall, and I'm not kidding, room 666. And he had refused to meet with the gay community. And lots of people in Philadelphia were getting uh, blackmail for being gay. And I wanted him to go after them, and he wouldn't meet with us. So we decided that we would throw a party for him, or in my idea, he would throw a party for the LGBT community. So eight o'clock in the morning, we had ordered coffee and donuts for his office, and they took him in thinking it was for the staff from us. And at the same time, we were through the halls of City Hall handing out invitations to people that passed by saying, our inspector is throwing a party for the gay and lesbian community. Come join him in his office. And the following day on Section 2 of the Philadelphia Inquirer, top half, was a picture of me giving out coffee to people in Arlen Specter's office. Of course, he invited us into his inner office while the press corps was watching. And we got to talk to him. And that solved the problem of blackmail in Philadelphia. And in his memoir, he writes about that. How does he remember it? Is it a fond memory? Yes, we became friends. And he was a Republican at the time, and we became friends. When the Senate did vote on the Equality Act when he was senator, he is one of the few Republican senators who voted for it. Wow. We often talk now about how quickly our lives have improved and changed, and just how quick the pace of the LGBTQ movement has moved in the last 50 years. But that is me talking now, in this moment, having read about it in in textbooks, right? As someone who lived this history, has it moved fast to you? Has it moved slow? Like, what what is your assessment of that? Okay, so I'll tell you the moment for me that was probably the most important. It was President Obama during his second inaugural address when he said, Selma, Seneca Falls, Stonewall. Selma, Seneca Falls, Stonewall. That was the moment for me that I realized we did what we set out. The world now realized what we want to do, which is equality. We want to be equal. I always thought we were sort of like the stepson of civil rights movements. You know, they're over there. We, you know, we're the black sheep of civil rights movements. After that, I don't anymore. And, and so I, I give credit to Barack Obama for that. I mean, when Joe Biden made his acceptance speech after he won the 2020 election, he name-checked gay and transgender people. To me, that was wild to have that kind of inclusion. And yet, for all the progress that we have made over the last 50 years, it feels like now we've hit a place of complacency with that. We're just kind of good with how far we've moved the line, it seems. I just don't feel that momentum to keep pushing forward in the intensity in the ways that it was. Do you agree with that? Well, let's look at what, what I think should be the major effort right now, which is the Equality Act. You could get married. Right now, you can be denied being, you know, given a room in a hotel somewhere for your honeymoon. You could be denied um, renting an apartment simply because you're gay. This is in most places in the country, not some places in the country, most places in this country. You could be denied a wedding cake. You could be denied almost anything, quite honestly. So the reality is we have to get the Equality Act so that we are equal to everybody else, race, creed, religion, national origin, sexual orientation, and gender identity. 
they got to be included. That's what the Equality Act does. So if I was an activist today, I think it's time to get the Equality Act out. Why has no one in this country done something to get Mitch McConnell to move it to the floor? Why are we not locking ourselves to his door? Why are we not picketing his house? What is wrong with the creativity in this community? More has to be done. And be creative about it. Be funny about it. Make him feel like a fool. Wear clown outfits outside his office. Anything. Make a scene. Make it an issue. Make it something the press cannot not cover. We haven't done that. We're great at issuing press releases. We're great at being angry at everybody because they're not progressive enough. What are you getting done? Work with people. I got marriage equality in Pennsylvania under a team, under a right-wing Republican governor, Tea Party Republican governor. You could get things done if you have relationships with people. You might not like the people you're working with, but hey, that's politics. Are, are younger activists reaching out to you? you? Do you talk to any of them about these things? I talk to a lot of high schools and college groups, but no one asks. They do sometimes ask, what could we do now? And I mentioned what I just did that, said now. Do people act on it? No. My theory is that today people are just so happy to be debating on Facebook or Instagram or some form of social media, and they think that's their activism. It's not. Go out there and put yourself on the line. Well, I think like you said before, too, like when you were, you know, heavy into activism in your 20s, you were dirt poor. You know, this isn't a paying job. And so as these big cities get more and more expensive, it's like, well, I can't go protest Mitch McConnell. I got to go to work. Got to pay rent. Well, unfortunately, money seems to be motivating a lot of other people. I think that in some respects, people in New York, Washington, D.C., and places where there is non-discrimination law, yeah, they could. They certainly could. They're allowed to have free speech and demonstrate, and there's non-discrimination in those cities. So in D.C., yeah, you could. In Virginia, yes, you could. In Maryland, you could. So where does Mitch McConnell live? I'm sure he lives in either D.C., Virginia, or Maryland. Why are you not picketing his house? Why are you not picketing his neighborhood? Why are you not picketing the stores he goes to? Create problems for him. He's created a problem for us. We need to create problems for him. He is the sole person, one person, holding up non-discrimination for all of us, and none of our national organizations have led. What did we do when our lives were at stake? An organization called ACT UP was created. Did they go by norms of society? No. ACT UP, in my belief is probably the reason we got to where we got with HIV AIDS. Not the numerous organizations who were just talking to government officials, but it was ACT UP who made them come to the table. And they did that with a Republican administration. Yeah. You know, before I tell you go, you are about to turn 70 pretty soon. Just as you're airing this, I am turning 70. Are you beginning to start to think about your own mortality at all? No! <laughs> I feel as though I'm in my 20s or 30s. I know I'm old. I know I'm 70. I love, by the way, calling myself old. I just love that. I adore it. I mean, to have the Smithsonian come to you and say, we would like your papers and artifacts over the last 50 years, whereas the community hated us, all of us, who were gay activist lines, gay liberation front, whatever, for being activists. That has changed somewhat. We're now allowed to talk about who we are, what we did. We, have create, we help create that safety. I ask that because I don't think that 70 is, you know, extremely old, but I also didn't know how living through the AIDS crisis and having your partner test positive for HIV, how all those things affected one's like sense of mortality. 
that lover who eventually died of AIDS. During the early crisis of AIDS, that's something to me that I will never forget. I got into a very deep depression and his line to me was, get over it just because you're not going through it. You can't go through everything this community goes through. The reality is, yes, I can. I mean, while I'm HIV negative, I can go through it because I can be a champion for those people who are HIV positive. And I was during that period of time. I Again, I tried to be a little creative and do some things that nobody else ever did before. I think that's what keeps me going is that I continue to do new things. I don't stop. In my 60s, I created one of the first LGBT affordable living facility for seniors. I think if you learn something every day, you don't grow old. And that is Mark Siegel. If you want to learn more about the work that Mark does, he's also the author of the very excellent memoir called And Then I Danced, Traveling the Road to LGBT Equality. Now, as always, helping us to spread the word about our show is the biggest way that you can help us grow. We did that big annual listener survey last year, and the biggest thing that I learned is that about 90% of you found our show through a personal recommendation. So send a text, send a tweet, post an Insta story. We've been doing this for about five years now, holy cow. And with your help, I think we can do it for another five. So let's do it. We're brought to you by The Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and I'm out of here. Bye.